1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. You can read along with me in the handout or from your Bibles. This is in the NIV translation. The Apostle John writes, he says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray. O holy and gracious Father, we worship you every day, but our worldly concerns throughout the week war against our spirits. We praise you for this sacred day set aside before the foundations of the world for us to gather before you as one body and be refreshed this morning. We thank you for the gathering of the saints, your church, whereby you draw near to us and we to you. We rejoice in another Lord's day where we call our minds off the cares and concerns of the world and worship you without distraction or noise. I pray that our worship of you this morning would be devout, our conversations one to another edifying, our reading sacred, the preaching faithful, and our hearing profitable so that our souls may be kindled and set ablaze for you this morning. As we gather in this house of praise, awaken in us every grateful and truth-filled emotion. As we gather in this house of instruction, be a living testimony to the word proclaimed and glorify it in the hearts of all who hear. Use your word this morning to enlighten the ignorant, awaken the careless, Reclaim the wandering, strengthen the weak, comfort the hurting, and make holy a people for your eternal glory, O Lord. I pray that you would be a stronghold to all unable to be here this morning and pour out on us a love for our families, a forgiveness towards our enemies, peace with our neighbors, and an abiding watch care and biblical love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And above all else, may the name of your son, Jesus Christ, be glorified in all the earth this holy day. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. It is our hope that as we pray and as we bring scriptures to bear... Um, And as we sing to the living God, that our hearts and minds are made ready to eat the main meal. Um, The sermon, the preparation that takes place during the week, is intended to feed God's sheep. 
And so by God's grace, you will be fed well this morning from his word, that you will be encouraged, you'll be edified, you'll be lifted up, you'll be convicted if necessary, and God will be glorified in our midst as we continue to look at this most compelling letter. In the first part of John, of the first part of chapter 2, the apostle was instructing the saints at Ephesus on how to live godly lives. He was instructing them on holiness, on repentance, on obeying his commands, submitting to his teachings, on knowing him, on walking as Jesus walks, and loving one another as Jesus loves us. And in this passage, the apostle turns his attention not to how we are to live, but how we are not to live. The things that we are to avoid, specifically, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Do not be attached to the temporal. Now, when we look back at the history of God's people, we see this perpetual struggle, this dynamic that takes place between our love for the world and our love for God, oftentimes competing, oftentimes one superseding the other. In Genesis 19, Lot's wife was turned to a pillar of salt when she looked longingly back on Sodom and Gomorrah. In the desert, the Israelites grumbled against God and Moses, longing to be back under their earthly masters in Egypt. After taking the promised land, idolatry and cohabitation with the Canaanites contaminated right worship in the promised land. In the early church, professing believers recanted of their faith in Christ before their earthly masters in order to save their own lives. During the Middle Ages, we saw the gospel church swallowed up by the monolithic world religion of Roman Catholicism. During the Reformation and following, we saw the the gospel church battling against nationalism and state religion. And today, the battle against the ways of the world on the church, in almost every area of life, family, faith, politics, society, education, medicine, entertainment, religion, we live in a time and a place when even within the context of the church, we are at war with God against Him, His teachings, His Son, and most certainly the gospel of grace. And therefore, the apostles' words to us this morning are particularly relevant in light of our cultural moment as they have been for centuries. Lest we find ourselves as a people looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah, looking back at Egypt, or looking back at an American Christianity gone awry many years ago. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle John has a warning for us this morning. And it is a hard one. Pastor Sheets alluded to it in the welcome and announcements period. The letter that John gives us by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to be heard with great encouragement in the power of Christ. And we'll see that as he introduces it. So let's look this morning first at the affirming of our position and power in Christ. He starts off by saying, this is who you are in Christ, and this is the power that you have in Christ, before he gives us any imperative. Secondly, we will see his stated appeal, do not love the world. Simple. To understand, difficult to live out. And then he says, he justifies in the third point, this appeal that he makes. So first, he affirms our position and power in Christ. Then he states the appeal, do not love the world. And then he justifies why he gives this to us. First, let's look at the affirming of our position and power in Christ. 
One of the struggles that I've noticed over my, um, the last decade of ministering to people is when we hear categorical imperatives like do not love the world or the things of the world, we do oftentimes, we'll do one of two things. We will say, that's impossible. I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I'm still a sinner. I don't have the power not to love the world. Or we will in our fleshly mind say, it's not necessary. It's not necessary to, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's not necessary not to love the world. Grace covers all of that. It may be good to obey the laws of God, but it's not necessary. We fight against teachings like John said in 1 John 2, 4, that the man who says, I know him, I am saved, but does not do what he commands as a liar and the truth is not in him. We, we struggle with that, and I, I understand why. In the context of our moment, our time, we have a perversion of the gospel of grace. And that perversion, that once saved, always saved, doesn't matter how you live, way to God, is not the teaching of the Bible. It's been perpetuated and continues to be perpetuated by many so-called evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-centered churches. The title doesn't mean anything, saints. What word is being proclaimed? How the lives are being lived out? Is it in alignment with Scripture and Christ? means everything. So the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John, he spent way too much time with Jesus to accept any perversion of the real gospel of grace, which demands obedience. It demands obedience. James said, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Show me your faith without deeds, James said, and I'll show you my faith by how I live my life in submission to God, his law, his purpose, his will. And so John comes along and he makes a most radical claim to contradict the false teachers of his day. As Pastor Kurt talked about last week, the Gnostics came in and it said, it doesn't matter how you live, we'll make a distinction between the flesh and the spirit. It's just what you think, it's just what you say, it's what you proclaim, but not how you live. Submission to the law, they would say, is not necessary. How wonderful it would have been if that were just an aberrant teaching of the first century. But it's permeated every century in the history of the church and most certainly permeates this day. And so, God, so John comes along to reveal that every true believer in every epoch of human history has been called to submit to the laws of God. Has the power in Christ to submit to the laws of God. John comes along and says, God has equipped you to battle against sin, to live in the light, to not love the world. So let us look at these very, very encouraging words, starting off in verses 12, 13, and 14. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he repeats himself. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Before he gives us this very difficult imperative to not love the world or the things of the world, he starts off with this very firm foundation of who we are in Christ and the power we have in Christ to hear the imperative and not be discouraged. Because more often than not, we'll hear it and we'll say, impossible, not necessary, I can't do it. And look at what he says here. 
He gives us three categories. It's divided up in lots of ways. They'll say, some will argue these are three categories of spiritual development. Children, young men, and fathers in the faith. That's legitimate. Others argue there are two categories, fathers and young men, and he's talking about dear children in the context of all believers. It doesn't matter how you come down on it. The point that he's making in verses 12, 13, and 14 is the position and power you have in Christ to hear the imperative that comes in verse 15. Let me show you. Verse 12, he says, Dear children, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And then he says again to the dear children in verse 13, You have known the Father. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to give you this imperative in the context of your sins already being forgiven by God in Christ. In the name of Christ. You stand at this very moment, if you are in Christ, washed clean. You have been forgiven by the person of Christ and by the work of Christ. Peter boldly declares this in his sermon in Acts chapter 4, where he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, our propitiation, our advocate. It's his work by which we call out Abba Father and receive forgiveness for our sins. So the young Christian and every Christian ought to rejoice daily in this simple life-changing, eternal truth. That your sins have been, notice past tense, they have been forgiven on account of Jesus' work on the cross. And that means that they have been forgiven once and for all, then as you sit here right now, if you know Christ, and you listen to the word being proclaimed, and as you sing songs to the Holy God, then your sins are forgiven at this moment. You're clean in Christ. That's reason for all of us to jump up and shout Hallelujah. You may if you'd like. It means that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus right now. And so he says to the young children, he says to the children, he says to all believers, your sins are forgiven because of the name of God. You know God. And then he says to the fathers, the fathers of the faith, those more mature in their walk with the Lord. He says, you have known him who is from the beginning. Now he says to the children, you've known him also. But to the fathers, you've known him longer. You've known him some time. You've walked with God faithfully for years. Your faith has been ripened by experience. As God has faithfully moved with you in both the ups and the downs and the ebb and the flow of life. And so he's saying to the fathers, you know him. Not just know about him, but you really know him. You have an intimacy and a proximity with him that should give you a firm foundation when John says to the fathers, do not love the world. I have been blessed by just a few men that have walked long with the Lord, older men that have loved God God passionately. And, And although I have been in awe of their scriptural knowledge and wisdom, so much more have I seen their character transformed by the intimacy and proximity that they've had in their lifelong walk with Christ. And I long for that. I still long for it. These fathers had been changed by the living God. So he comes to the children and he says to the children, your sins have been forgiven, you know the father. And he comes to the father, fathers of the faith and he says, you know him. And then to the young men, 
He says, you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. And that's what young people need to hear. I have had the blessed opportunity of of working with many young people over the years and they have many uh, struggles. And as time passes and as the culture collapses, more and more struggles they have. John comes along here and he says, young men, young women, if you're in Christ, you're strong. Why does he say that? Because they're young? No. He says, you're strong because the word of God dwells in you. The word of God lives in you. You say, well, what does that mean? This is the word of God. In Hebrews, it says the word of God is what? It's living and it's active. There's power. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the word of God is at work in you who believe. Doing what? Strengthening, purifying, convicting, teaching. It's why he's able to say to Timothy, who was young also, In 1 Timothy 4.12, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young. He says, but instead set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. The only way that Paul could say that to Timothy at such a young age is because Paul knew that the word that dwelt in Timothy is greater than he who is in the world. That Timothy and every young person and every old person, every person in Christ has overcome the evil one. Satan himself... You have overcome if you're in the Lord. And that's what John is saying here. Not by your might, not by your strength, but by God's word. The word of God, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, the community of saints, young and old, there is such a ripe opportunity for you to grow deep in the Lord, to submit to God, to love Christ, to follow his commandments. We are truly without excuse. You have the word of God. You have the Holy Spirit. And you have a body of believers. We will stand before God and he says, why why did you live your whole life not submitting to me? And we'll say, I couldn't. He said, no, it's a lie. You had my word. You had my spirit. And you had my family. What a blessing. What a blessing. We above all people immeasurably blessed with the word of God, the Holy Spirit, and one another. Yes, we're blessed with one another. Grumble, grumble, grumble. John, and all six of these teachings, two to the children, two to the young men and young women, and two to the fathers, and all six of the teachings, in the Greek, they're actually in the present tense, which means what? It means that they're all based and grounded upon a past action. What past action? You know what it is. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, what John is saying is so utterly profound. He says, you have been forgiven because of Christ. You know the Father now because of Christ. You have great strength and victory and power now because of Christ. You've overcome the evil one because of Christ. In other words, he's giving us an encouraging word right now because of the great work that Christ has already done. And that means that that right now, these things are true for those who know Jesus. They're true right now. God is saying to us, if you know the Messiah, if you've been saved by grace, repented of your sins, and have put your faith in the work of my son, God says, then you have forgiveness for your sin. You have intimacy with me, God is saying. You have victory over Satan and his minions. You have power to resist the devil. 
and pursue righteousness and holiness. He says, above all else, you have me. God's saying, in Christ, you have me. My daily presence in your life. Did you see that list? Forgiveness, intimacy, victory, power, and the presence of the living God right now in Christ. I got to ask you, what more do you want? I mean, are we going to be utterly greedy? What more do you want? Forgiveness of your sins, intimacy with God, victory over sin, death, and Satan, power to live a holy life, and the presence of the living God right now. Do we want to raise our hand and say, can I have, you know, a car? Or I mean, what else do we want? What else do we need? Nothing. We are to be completely satisfied in Christ. And we are readily equipped to live holy lives. Right now, in Christ. We are readily equipped to fight off the sirens of the world that call us out of his presence, out of his holiness, and to the things of the world. Right now, John comes, and I love this, in verses 12, 13, and 14. He says, here's the bedrock upon which I'm going to give you the imperative. Here's the foundation upon which you now stand. Because what he says in verses uh, 15, 16, 17, they're hard. But he says, I'm going to tell you this in the context of who you are in Christ. Forgiven, intimate with God, victory, power, and the presence of the living God in your life. Are you ready for the imperative now? I pray so. So let's hear it, shall we? Point number two. What appeal did John make? He cannot say it any more plainly. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 The apostle says, do not love the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now the Christian has entered into and enjoys the inheritance of the saints. Forgiveness, fellowship, victory over the evil one, and power to live a holy life. Okay? And yet, because we are still in the flesh, as Paul argues in Romans chapter 7, there's a battle that still rages between the flesh and the spirit. And we know this all too well. So, listen very carefully so you don't get sideways on me. When John says, do not love the world, he does not mean that you're going to do that in perfection on this side of heaven. He is giving us an imperative that we have the power to strive for and exercise in Christ. So do not hear this and say, well, there are times when I love the world, and there are times when I love the things of the world. Therefore, the love of the Father must not be in me. Therefore, I'm not saved. You leave here hearing that, and you've heard the wrong message. But we must evaluate ourselves well. So let's let's look closely. Still battling this flesh. According to the Bible, the fallen world is under the rule of whom? Satan. Jesus calls him the prince of this world three times in the Gospel of John. He identifies Satan as the prince of the world. This prince is represented by false teachers and false prophets, by politicians and policymakers that live according to the spirit of the lower A case, Antichrist. A spirit perpetuated by all who walk in the kingdom of darkness and have not been born again by the spirit of God. Everyone who still lives in the darkness that has not been saved in the light, everyone who has not been saved and redeemed by the Spirit of God walks according to the Spirit of the Antichrist. The word world that John uses here, here's a good all-inclusive definition. Are you ready? The sum 
of all the evil influences of demons and fallen men that attempt to draw us away from God in submission to Christ. The sum total of all the evil influences of demons and fallen men that attempt to draw us away from God and our submission to Jesus Christ. So when he's talking about the world, he's talking about that movement, that pull of the darkness. One author put it like this. Listen closely. To love the world of men as God loves it is to demonstrate benevolent, sacrificial goodwill toward men lost in sin. This is the duty of every Christian. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But, and this is an important but, to love the world as a moral order that is hostile to God is an altogether different thing. To love the world in this manner is to court the world's favor, follow its customs, adopt its ideals, covet its prizes, and seek its fellowship. It is setting one's affections on evil in his tantamount to deserting God. The true believer, according to Jesus Christ in John 17, has been chosen out of the world. This is not our place. This is not our home. This is not to whom we belong. Our allegiance is now to a king. It is to Jesus Christ and his kingdom to his righteousness, not the prince of this world and not to the ways of men. And that means, simply put, to set our affections, to set our desires, to set our ultimate desires upon the world or the things of this world is to not put them on God. And that can mean only one thing, that the love of God is not in us. As John said in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If your greatest desire and your greatest hope and your greatest affections are, are attached to the world and the things of the world, then John is saying as plainly as he can, the love of the Father is not in you. Now, some of us are going to hear that and we're going to say what? That's harsh, Pastor. I mean, that is so brutally black and white. You're telling me if I love the world and the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in me, even if I profess Christ, I'm not telling you that. The Bible is. I don't have the authority to tell you that, but the Bible does. If you think it's too harsh, if in your mind you're saying, can there not be a middle ground? Can there not be a gray area? Can there not be a place where I can love God and love the things of God and love the world and love the things of the world simultaneously? Can't we cohabitate in some fashion? Isn't there a place somewhere there? Can't we dabble a little in both and still be saved? According to contemporary Western Christianity, the answer is yes. You can. According to Jesus Christ in the Bible, the answer is no, you cannot. If you want to believe contemporary American Christianity that says, yes, you can have both the world and God, then you must reject Christ in the Bible. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot do both. Dual allegiance, my beloved, is no allegiance at all. Dual allegiance to God and to the world is no allegiance at all. Married women of the church, let me ask you a simple question. How many of you would be all right if your spouse wanted to stay married to you and simultaneously have a girlfriend on the side? How many? 
Raise your hands if you'd approve of such an arrangement. Why so harsh? Why so black and white? Hmm? Isn't partial allegiance to the covenant of marriage okay? If we have that standard within our own marriages, how much more so our covenant relationship with the living God? If you're not okay, men or women, with your spouse going out and just dating someone on the side, how much more so our covenant relationship with the living God who says, I am God, worship me, honor me, and no one and nothing else. Partial obedience is no obedience at all. Partial allegiance is no allegiance at all. In Numbers chapter 25, we're told that while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. God's people ate and bowed down before these gods. Israel joined in the worship of Baal of Peor. I encourage you to go study about this particular Baal. It is unbelievably heinous. So bad I can't even describe it from the pulpit. And the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may be turned away from Israel. 24,000 Israelites died as a result of their loving the world, Baal of Peor, and the things of the world, the Moabite women. 24,000 died. Paul said rightly in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Satan? Saints, if we love God, we will not love the world or the things of the world. And if you love the world and the things of the world, then your professed love for God is a sham. It's not real. It doesn't matter how long you've gone to church. It doesn't matter when you were baptized. It doesn't matter how often you read your Bible. If you love the world and you love the things of the world and you've set your affection on the temporal then John is right. The love of God is not in you. There's no other conclusion we can come to without calling Jesus Christ a liar, and I don't think he is a liar. Now, grievously, not only has this fundamental distinction between light and darkness, a love for God and a love for the world been blurred within our culture and blurred within our churches, in many evangelical circles, the exact opposite is being taught. The exact opposite is being taught in pulpits across this country and the world today that you can have God and the world simultaneously. You can have them both. You can have righteousness and sin, Christ and Satan, comfortably cohabitating together. Isn't this why so much outward, unrepentant, habitual sin permeates our churches? Why they're not holy places? Isn't this why most evangelical churches today do not engage in church discipline, even though it is prescribed and commanded by the Bible? Or why we find ourselves bending our theology and our ecclesiology to match the practices and ways of the world, all in the name of evangelism and outreach. How we twist theology and we twist how we do church, all in the name of bringing the gospel to the lost. Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17 was that we be in the world, but not of the world. It has become being in the world and kind of not of the world, or sort of not of the world, or not completely of the world. Or evangelical websites talking about evangelizing the lost. 
will come along and they will say things like, to someone who doesn't know Christ, you have a great life, education, family, career, Jesus will make it better. You have everything that you need right now and all you need, all you're lacking, all you're missing is Christ. Just add Christ on. Christ is not an add-on. He's not an app that we upload and now we have you know, a, a more powerful system by which to, to navigate information. If you have Christ, you have everything. If you don't have Christ, you don't have anything. He's not an add-on. We should not be going to the lost and say, you know, your life's good. You have a wife, you have a home, you have an education, you have a job. All you need, the icing on the cake, the cherry on top is Jesus. Just take Jesus and you, then you're complete. This is not the gospel message. The gospel message to the rich and the poor, the educated and the ill-educated, is you are lost and dead in your sins and transgressions. And only Christ can make you alive. Jesus is not an add-on. He's not something that will just make our life better. He is to be your whole life. God's people are to be a holy people, a sacred people. That word sacred comes from the, 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 in the Latin, the translate is sanctum, and it literally means to be set apart, to be separated. From what? From the world. Not this medieval monastic sense of hiding behind monastic walls. It's not what the Bible t- teaches. It's being separate in how we live, living as a sanctified people, Loving one another, serving one another, sharing the gospel with the lost, living in accordance with God's teachings, changing the culture, not having the culture change us. What a radical thought that the people of God would change the culture and not the culture changing the people of God. James. He and John share a lot in common, no less blunt. James 4, 4, he said, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is a hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Saints, if you love the world or the things of the world, and the Bible says the love of the Father is not in you. If you are friends with the world and the things of the world, then the Bible says you're an enemy of God and you hate God. I don't want to sugarcoat that. I don't want us to try to put trappings around that. I want that truth to settle in deep so that we, professing believers, will examine ourselves in light of Scripture and say, do I love God most? Do I fear God most? Do I love Him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Because I say it a lot. I mean, that's the first commandment. It just rolls off my tongue. But is it true? Or do I really, do I really love the world? Do I really love the things of the world? We want to compromise somehow. We're pressed by the text to compromise. We want to push the question and say, why can't we have both? Give me some reason. The Bible gives us several. John will give us two as to why we cannot be, as the polytheistic bumper sticker says, coexist. Don't you hate that sticker? Do you ever have the desire to just, you know, take that sticker and the bumper and just destroy the whole thing? 
coexist, just get along. Why must we be so exclusive in our love for God? Why must this Christianity be such a narrow path? Can't we just broaden it up a bit and bring a little bit of the world here and a little bring of the world here? Can't we just do that? The answer is the same as the imperative. It is a categorical no. And John tells us why. Let's look at our third point. John doesn't just make the appeal based upon this secure place you are in Christ. He justifies the statement. Look at verses 16 and 17. Why should we listen to John and not love the world? He writes, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from God, but from the world. For the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And so John comes and he gives us two very simple and yet compelling reasons why there is no way that we can love God and love the world simultaneously. And he tells us this, he says, the love of the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, he says, that doesn't come from God, that comes from the world. Reason number one. And number two, he says, this world's passing away. It's headed for destruction. So if you love it, you too will be destroyed. Two compelling reasons that by God's grace we will listen to with all our might and be thoroughly convinced as well that we ought not love the world or the things of the world. So let's look at the first. Let's look at the first reason that John gives us not to love the world. He says, because the world, the love of the world, the things of the world, they're not from God. They're not of God. They're of the world and sin itself. And he, he gives us this understanding with three defining characteristics of what it means to love the world. I love it. So we don't just have this vague, well, what does that look like? He says, I'll tell you what it looks like. The cravings of sinful flesh, sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he does. Three. Let's look at each briefly, can we? Are you still with me? Nod your head if you're still with me. Say amen. amen. Praise God for that. That's encouraging. It's encouraging. I haven't put you to sleep yet. First, the cravings of sinful man. Also translated the lust or the desires of the flesh, maybe in your Bible. They both work. All those desires, all the appetites resulting from our, our fallen nature that are exercised without regard to the will of God. All those desires that are exercised independent of God's will and God's laws. Now, it's not all the desires because some of the desires are God-given. And we'll look at that too. But it's all the desires, good and bad, that are not in accordance with God's law and his will. The word for craving, in some of your Bibles, the word for lust, in the Greek, it's epithumia. And I've used the word before. It's so fantastic because it means an extreme desire or an extreme compulsion or an extreme craving. And that means it can be a craving for things that God says you ought not crave, and it may be a craving for things that are good. Let's look at that first category, Jesus, these cravings that we ought not crave, that are forbidden by God. Jesus said, all that comes out of the heart of men, Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. And we could add to that list, couldn't we? I could add another 30. He said, all the things that come out of the human heart, these are things that we ought not crave. 
But he also is talking about all the good things, all the blessings from God, godly marriages, God-honoring children, the blessing of having a job and being able to pay your bills and feed your family. He's saying all the good things that I give you too, they can be lustful cravings as well. How so? When that epithumia becomes inordinate, more loving something of this world, even a blessing from God more than you ought. This is a little more subtle. You say, oh, I get the evil thoughts, the sexual immorality, the theft, the murder, I get that. But this is more subtle because we can love the very blessings of God to a greater degree than we ought, an inordinate love. Jesus said in Matthew 10, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's saying, you can take the very good, great, wonderful blessings I give you, and you can love them to a degree that it's hateful toward me. He said, what does that look like practically? Is it good for me to love my wife? Yes or no? I'm commanded to love my wife. It's good if I love my wife. It's good for my wife if I love my wife. It's good for me if I love my wife. It's good for my children if I love my wife. It's honoring to God if I love my wife. But... If my love for my wife supersedes my love for God, it has become epithumia. It has become lustful. It has become inordinate. If I love my wife more than I love God, I have now, that love has now superseded the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, not my wife. Someone will say, what does that look like? Sometimes very similar. This is hard. Because we're talking about the heart. We're talking about the motivation of the heart. How do I know if I love my wife more than I love God? I'll give you just a few. And these are not, these are not uh, absolute, so be careful. They're not absolute. If I can never be alone, if I need my wife next to me all the time, and I cannot be alone with God, that's problematic. If every time I'm in crisis mode, instead of going to God's word, and instead of going to God in prayer, I run to my wife, she may have become my functional savior. If I find joy in the presence of my wife, and I'm depressed and gloomy when she's gone, that may be an indicator that I put her on a pedestal. If my wife precedes me in death, and she goes before God, and I am destitute and destroyed. And I say, I can't go on living without my wife, and I have truly revealed who my Savior is, and it's not Christ. There are ways that we can evaluate the love of our heart. If you're in crisis mode, and you find yourself running to the things of the world, or the world instead of Christ, that's an indication that you might have an inordinate epithumia love. So first... John says, look at the cravings of sinful man. These are not of God, they're of the world. Secondly, he warns us against the lust of our fallen eyes, the epithumia of the eyes, the craving of the eyes. You say, well, what is that? That's easy. I mean, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. All those things that captivate us in the culture, all the things that we don't have that we want, which cause us to covet, and all the things that we do have that we stare at because we love it so much. The obvious things. Clothes. In our culture, 
I'm just going to state some of the obvious. Clothes, yes. Cars, homes, physical appearance, food, technology, technology, financial prosperity, prestige, all the things the marketeers are trying to get us to consume. The things that come before our eyes and dazzle our eyes that we crave for and we lust after. Now, John is not saying that it's sinful to find, to find pleasure in beholding real beauty. And there's a whole other dialogue on what that is, which we won't talk about now. But certainly, God as creator has created much real beauty. So it's not sinful to behold something beautiful and say, oh, I shouldn't look at that. That's the sin of my eyes. It becomes sinful, listen closely, when the love of beauty is divorced from goodness and righteousness. It becomes sinful when our love for beauty is divorced from the righteousness of God and the goodness of God. Let's take, for example, a beautiful woman. Her beauty to a man becomes lustful when he no longer sees her beauty as God's marvelous creation, but as an object to be consumed for his carnal pleasures, whether in his mind or physically. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Of course we got to go here. Is there any greater description of the law of sacred scripture? One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. He should have been at war with his troops, but he was home, slothful. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. Craving and lust of his eyes. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. He slept with her. And you know how the story plays out. Uriah, such a faithful, godly man. What happens to him? David has him murdered. David, has, David succumbs to the lustful desires of his eyes. And what does it bring into his home? The murder of a godly man, Uriah. The death of the son conceived between Bathsheba and David. And then the Bible said to the prophet Nathan, the sword will never depart from your house. And we see that not just in the house of David, but in the house of David played out to the history of Israel. That sword never left. Why? Because David here loved the things of the world. He, had, he caved in to the lust of his eyes. And the progression of the lust of the eyes, if not checked by the Holy Spirit, according to James, is we're dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? To death. And that's the end. Every time. So we have the lust of the sinful flesh. We have the lust of the eyes. And John gives us one more because you're, you're trying to get out of it. You're like, oh, I'm, I'm doing all right on these two. This is the all-encompassing one. It's the pride of life. Some of your translations, the pride of life, the boasting of what he has and does. Now, some argue, rightfully so, within the context of the language, that this is, this is the showy display of, of one's material possessions. This is the, the bragging about your successes and your degrees and, and, and how well you've done in life. I believe 
in my understanding of the, the language, that a better description, which would include what I just said, that it's talking about a spirit of arrogance, a, an arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency, where you're saying to God, and man, look, look at me. Look what I've done. I've done all this on my own. This is how smart I am. This is how hard I work with my resources and my skills. In other words, a vain sense of security and personal success based upon a false estimate of one's own abilities and resources. A vain sense of security and success based upon a false estimate of your own resources and your own abilities. A spirit of self-sufficiency requires the rejection of all the things we have no control over. It's always amazing to me, and the more, the more I grow in Christ, and the more I see how ridiculously feeble I am apart from him, and how many things he put in place in my life that I had no control over, where I was born, to whom I was born, the time in which I was born. I didn't have any control over those things. Our God-given physical and mental faculties, those who surround us, the government under which we live, the economic conditions, the academic opportunities, the cultural influences, it's astounding how much we have no control over. And the list goes on and on. It is utterly foolish to think of ourselves as independent, autonomous, self-sufficient beings. Utterly foolish you are radically dependent upon, I would say, an infinite number of things, many of which we don't even know about. Radically dependent. And yet this perversion of autonomous self-sufficiency has captivated the Western world. I mean, it's permeated. It's been sown in generation after generation after generation. You, your fight, you do the work. You set your mind to it. It just mm, contaminates our thinking. These characteristic ways of the world define fallen man and they come from the world, not from God. The sinful cravings of the flesh, the lusting of the eyes, the boasting of the pride of life. Fundamentally, if they do not come from God but from the world, then they are fundamentally a rejection of God as God. They all desire something or someone more than the living God to be satisfied and to be filled. The cravings of our flesh, the sinful cravings, the lusting of our eyes, the pride of life, all of those, when we, when we embrace those and we live in accordance with those, we're saying, God, you're not enough. God, I'm not satisfied. And you say, well, how do I know that's just not how we are? I would say that is how we are in the fallen world. That is who we are as fallen creatures. But there's no way out of this, saints. We cannot attribute it to God. It must be attributed to the world. And in fact, we can say it's attributed to original sin. How so? This goes all the way back. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The cravings of the flesh, the lusting of the eyes, the pride of life, right back to Genesis chapter 3. Let me read to you, beginning in verse 1. This story never gets old, does it? Ever. The serpent, who was more crafty than all of the wild animals the Lord God had made, said to Eve, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now listen closely to the diabolic progression of thought that led to Adam and Eve sinning against God and sending all of creation to a free fall rebellion against the creator. Listen to verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Did you see that? The fruit was good for food. She indulged the forbidden desires of her flesh, the sinful cravings to which she had been forbidden to take. Strike one. The fruit was what? Pleasing to her eyes. She longed for the beautiful fruit that she could not have, but she could see. Strike two. The fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. She longed to boast, to be like God, having the knowledge of good and evil. Strike three. The very things that John says are from the world and not from God, we know to be true because they started in the garden with Eve. It was her fall that was a result of the cravings of her flesh and the lust of her eyes and the pride of life. She wanted to be like God. The very roots of this warning go back to the very beginning of our fall from God's grace. These are not from God. These are from our fallen parents. These are from the rebellion in the garden. And John says, look how it turned out for them. Have some wisdom, he says, saints, have some wisdom. Look what happened when Adam and Eve engaged in the craving of the flesh and the lust of their eyes and the pride of life. What happened to them? They were cast out of the garden. They were cast out of the presence of God. They were cursed rather than blessed. What was their inheritance? It was death instead of life. He says, don't be like your parents. John is saying, don't be foolish. Remember what he said in verses 12 to 14. He says, in Christ you have forgiveness. In Christ you have intimacy. In Christ you have victory. In Christ you have power. In Christ you have the presence of the living God. Don't fall back onto the sins of your parents, of Adam and Eve. Don't go back to your old ways. Don't love the world and the things of the world, suffering the same fate they suffered. Now that's sufficient. I mean, that's sufficient justification for this imperative. We'd say, that's enough. I, I get it. I get it. We would, we would agree with James when James says, submit yourself therefore to God, not to the world. Resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. So that's enough. But John doesn't leave us with that. He adds another punch. He says, I'll give you another reason why you ought not love the world or the things of the world. Look at verse 17. He says, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The world and its things, the cravings of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, John says, are already passing away. Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, this is, the time is short for this world in its present form is passing away. What does that mean? 
That means that it's going away. It's disappearing. It will be ultimately judged and destroyed. What does that mean? That means that if we love the world and the things of the world and the world and the things of the world are passing away and we love the world most and we attach ourselves to the world most, then we are passing away too. And if the end of the world is destruction, then our destruction will be complete as well. If your allegiance is to this fallen world, then your end is destruction as well. We know this to be true. Even if you've never heard 1 John 2.17, if you've never heard it preached, you know this. If you've lived any period of time in Christ, or even outside of Christ, this is an eternal truth. How do we know it? How do we know that this world is passing away? That there is no true, everlasting joy and satisfaction in the world or the things of the world. How do we know this apart from the Bible telling us? Let me ask you a couple questions. How often have you tried to find lasting joy in fleshly desires? Food, sex, entertainment, relationships, money. How'd that work out? Lasting joy. I mean, how many of you are still thinking about that piece of cake you had six months ago? Anybody? Oh, I still have the joy of that cake upon my lips from six months ago. No, you want another piece now. Why? It doesn't last. It doesn't last. And I'm not saying that cake is a sinful desire, especially chocolate cake. But if your desire for chocolate cake becomes inordinate, it may become sinful. How often? Have you found true contentment by consuming what your eyes long for most? How often? The crude, the base. Maybe it was a car, maybe it was a job, maybe it was a spouse, maybe it was an outfit, maybe it was, you know, a, a new iTunes download, maybe it was a new phone. How often did that, what you look at, you say, oh, I, I want that, and you have it, and then as soon as you get it, what happens? Fleeting, passing away. Why? This is the world. These are the things of the world. They're passing away. There's no lasting joy. There's no lasting satisfaction. The world and its things cannot fill the glory-starved heart. How many of you have found permanent satisfaction in the successes that you have obtained or the things that you've obtained? Remember that first job you got that you were so excited to get how long did it take for the joy to run out of that one? How long? Maybe the first hour? Maybe the first week? First year? We should praise God for that. I praise God that you don't find joy in the earthly things. I praise God that you see them fleeting and temporary because that will press you to the eternal. No one finds joy, permanent joy in these things. Why? Because the world and its things, they are passing away. There's no lasting power. And that's why we continue to consume. And that's why the marketeers know. They know this is how we are as fallen men and fallen women. We will continue to consume, to continue to find that joy that is ever fleeting in this fallen world. I mean, okay. Is there any reason to have 10, 20, or 30 pairs of shoes? And I'm not pointing fingers, but is there? That way, i got to have that next pair and that next pair. Or 30, 
or 40 different socket sets. The same socket, the same size. It's a nine millimeter socket set. Do I got to have 20 of them? That's me. Not the shoes. I'm into the sockets. Or the iPhone. The new iPhone 5. Was the old iPhone 5? Or the iPhone 4? Don't take this personally. How about the, the husband or wife we exchange after 20 years? Not satisfied anymore. If we set our hearts, if we set our hopes, if we set our life on the world or the things of the world, and it is passing away, then so too will we. We will pass away. Right with it. John is saying simply, to build one's life around the world and the things of the world is not only sinful, it is utterly foolish. It's utterly foolish. It will be destroyed in the great fire to come, and if you've attached yourself to it, you too will be destroyed in that same fire. Now, we must not conclude that because we profess Jesus Christ faithfully and attend church and we have been baptized that we're exempt from this warning. By God's grace, I hope that you haven't written yourself out of the last 15 minutes. Especially given the state of the church and the worldly influence that's made its way into the church. I think we, I think I can say this, we, in light of all of human history in the church, we need to examine ourselves most deeply. We need to be most careful in light of the teaching and preaching that's going out from the pulpits today. We need to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. How much of the world's made its way in here? How much has made its way into my life? How much has made its way into my family? How much have I loved the world and I don't even know I love it? And I think it's normal. Or I think it's Christian. Even worse. Now more than ever, we must examine ourselves, our passions, our loves, and our allegiances in light of the word of God. I prayed this week that you would not say, well, of course I love God, not the world. Can we just go on to the next sermon? I prayed that we would examine ourselves in light of this hard teaching. I pressed myself all week. I said, God, what do I love more than you? What things do I love more than you? Show me, Lord. All men with a worldly lust and a worldly love of the world, all men with a love of the world that supersedes their love for God will pass away with it, but not all men will pass away. John says, and he's right, if you love the world or anything in the love of the world, the love of the Father is not in you, meaning you're not saved. But then he says at the end of verse 17, the, Lord, the, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And he ends as he started with a great word of encouragement in verse 17. Now some of you may be saying this is not an encouragement, pastor, but a great disappointment. Why? You will say, I still struggle doing the will of God. I still battle my fleshly desires. I still battle my lustful eyes. I still battle against the pride of life. What hope is there for a sinner like me to overcome the ways of the world? I am not this righteous man of 17. What hope is there? I know of only one hope, and that is Christ and Christ alone. One hope, and that is Christ and Christ alone. 
In Matthew chapter 4, we're told that Jesus, after he was baptized in the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Listen closely, please. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, Satan said, Throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is also written, written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Your hope, my hope, anyone's hope of overcoming the ways of this world and the love of this world and the things of this world is Christ. It's Christ. Because just like Adam and Eve, Jesus was tempted. He was tempted with the cravings of the flesh. He was tempted with the, with the lustful cravings of the eye. He was tempted with the pride of life. And Satan said, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor I will give to you. The whole world. But unlike our fallen parents, Adam and Eve, Jesus did not succumb to the temptations of Satan, but he remained sinless. He was sinless in the desert. He was sinless during his ministry. He was sinless upon the cross. He was sinless for his entire life. You know what that means? That means he is the righteous man. He is the man in verse 17. He's the one who does the will of the Father perfectly. He is the one who will live forever. And what does that mean for us? That means if we put our hope and our trust and our faith in him, then we will live forever too. This is the good news of the gospel of grace, that if you put your faith in the living Savior, Jesus Christ, to save you, and not in your good works, that you will live forever. Jesus said in John 6, 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. It is the Father's will for you to look to the Son not to the world for salvation. It is the Father's will for you to put your faith and your hope and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, not the things or the ways of the world for life now or eternal. It is the Father's will for you to be raised up on that last day with Christ. It is the Father's will for you now to live a holy life, testifying to his glory and his power right now. It is the Father's will for you to say, not impossible, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It is the Father's will for you to say, not necessary, but ultimately necessary, that I might bring him honor and glory. Jesus Christ came to live that perfect life described here in verse 17, the man who does the will of the Father, to die your death on the cross, and in so doing, 
offer you and me and all who repent and believe hope in the midst of a world that's rapidly passing away. Certainly we would agree with that, that it is rapidly passing away. Christ says, but you don't have to be part of that mess. Christ offers us from the cross freedom from the sin that still has us bound the cravings of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Jesus Christ is making fit his people for a world to come, not this one. He's changing our desires, not for this world, but for the world to come when he comes again in all of his glory. And that means, saints, that doing God's will is the exact opposite that is involved in loving the world. It means putting to death the cravings of the sinful flesh. It means not succumbing to the lust of the eyes. It means not living for the pride of life so you can tell people how much you've made and where you live and the degrees you've acquired. It is, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, fixing our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, passing away, but what is unseen is eternal. We are to fix our hope where? Completely on the grace to be brought to us, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're to fix our hope on a crucified Christ. And this is the hope we have. Not in our goodness or our works, not in our vain successes or our material possessions, but in Christ and the cross. This is our hope. I know of no other hope than Jesus Christ. I know of no other hope than the gospel that comes from the cross. Our hope is in the forgiveness that comes to us on account of his name. Our hope is in the intimacy we have with our Abba Father because of Jesus' faithfulness. Our hope is in the victory we enjoy over the evil one because of Jesus' victory on the cross. Our hope is in the power we have right now to overcome sin and death because the righteous one rose from the dead. This is the hope that Jesus offers to us in the midst of a world that is passing away. It's why we sing Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strongly dim in the light of his glory and praise. It's why we sing, the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forever bear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. My beloved, if you are prone to hear a categorical imperative like do not love the world or the things of the world and you are prone to say to yourself impossible or you're prone to say to yourself unnecessary or not relevant, by God's grace, this morning, I pray that you've heard the word preached rightly. I pray that by God's grace, you will hear God speak to you this morning, maybe for the first time, that you will respond in the power of Christ by repenting and believing and putting your faith and your hope and your trust not in the world or the things of the world, but in Jesus Christ alone. And if you know him, you'd heed this warning 
You be satisfied in the Savior. Satisfied in Christ. That the world and the things of the world would not have you bound. Will you struggle and fight? Of course, we're still in the flesh. But you don't love the world. You don't love the things of the world. You love God. You love his son. You love the word. There's freedom in that. There is truly freedom in the things that you leave behind. There's freedom in Christ. And then in that freedom, by God's grace, you will understand and embrace the power we have as forgiven saints brought into the kingdom of light and you'll live radically holy lives. Submitting to God in every way so that this world might know that our God is a glorious God. Not saying I can't, but I can do all things through him. By God's grace, he will raise us up as a holy people, sacred, set apart, so that in our love for one another and our love for him and our submission to his word, we will change the culture. The culture won't change us. By God's grace, let's pray to that end. Father, we recognize this as a most, most difficult teaching. It is hard, Lord, for me to hear your words say, do not love the world or the things of this world with not casting myself and condemning myself to hell. And yet, Father, I know simultaneously that by your Holy Spirit and your word that dwells in me, it is greater than he who is in the world, that you have in Christ overcome sin, that you have overcome death, you've overcome Satan, I praise you for the work that I've seen in my brothers and sisters, seeing the love change from the world and the things of the world to you. Seeing the things of the world pass away in their hearts and minds as they commit themselves and devote themselves to a right, covenant, loving relationship with you, the living God, through your Son, Jesus Christ. I praise you for the submission. I praise you for the growth. Even the small growth I know is from you. What a glorious thing to see you transform the hearts and minds of people so lost into people who will be utterly glorified in your presence. By your grace, Father, I ask that you would pour out your blessings on us in a way unseen before. That we would find ourselves strangely and wonderfully not in love with the world and strangely and wonderfully loving you. This is what you called us to, Lord. This will be our end in Christ, a right love for you both now and forever. I pray you do this mighty work in us. In Christ's holy name, amen.